So we're headed into Christmas, you know that. We're also finishing, or not finishing, but just carrying on in our uh, Gospel of John study. So you're going to want your Bibles open to John 16. We're picking up the, where we left off a couple weeks ago, John 16, verse 4. Uh, Christmas is an interesting thing in North America because, uh, because of our Christian heritage and Christendom and the Christian memory that so many people have. Uh, if you walk out on the streets of the city and ask people what is Christmas about, most people in North America at least still know enough of the Coles notes of the Christmas story that they will recognize, okay, it's a Christian holiday. Uh, it's not just a federal statutory holiday, which it is, but it is actually a Christian holiday. Uh, if you press them for a little detail, they might even know that it is about the birth of Christ. Uh, they might mention Mary and Joseph. They might mention the trip to Bethlehem. Enough of the, uh, the details of that story. Uh, but it's interesting if you press them further, I wonder how quickly uh, the details would begin to fall apart. But in John's gospel, John opens by simply saying, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So talking about Jesus Christ. And then he gets on, John's Christmas story is summarized in just one little verse, John 1 verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. So the story of Christmas that Jesus Christ took on human flesh, came and lived among us, and then it goes on to say, and he was full of grace and truth, that we got to see God walking among us with flesh on, and that he came with a message of hope and love and joy and peace. We're, we're very familiar with those themes around Christmas. But if you ask the questions further... Okay, go a little bit deeper into this story. Why did he come? Like this Christmas story, it's all nice and well to remember it at Christmas time and that kind of thing, and everybody will add a little religion over Christmas. But why did he come? Uh, well, maybe it's because of the opposite, that our world was filled with despair and war and hurt and suffering and all of that. And so this message of love and joy and hope and peace is, is what we need. Okay, fine, but then press it deeper. So why did he have to die? Uh, couldn't he just come and have been a great motivational speaker and bring us all these great words, uh, these sentimental feelings? Why was he so hated? If these were indeed his message, love, joy, hope, and peace, why was he so hated? And even today, why is it that many reject Jesus? So it's not that we don't know that we're uh, in a mess. Every human on the planet will know that the world is, uh, however they would describe it, the world's broken. Uh, the world's falling apart. Ask the, the man on the street, uh, what's wrong with the world? The one answer that you're not going to hear is, nothing's wrong with the world. Everybody knows something's broken. Uh, we say it in different ways. It's like, life shouldn't be like this. Uh, there must be more than this. Or this can't be all there is. There's this longing in the human heart. Uh, there's an emptiness, there's a void, there's a nagging in the back of our minds. And so, uh, at North America at least, because we've got money to do these things, we just busy ourselves and distract ourselves, we don't think about it. Don't get quiet enough, don't rest enough, don't, don't pause, just stay busy, distract yourself, entertain yourself, just keep going. And if you, if you need some therapy, then go shopping. Uh, there's actually a category for this now, I guess a psychological category called shop therapy. So uh, you're, you're feeling down, just go spend some money. Buy some stuff, buy some trinkets, a new car, maybe a new house, uh, big purchases, lands, or just a little gadget and a gizmo and a trinket, a bauble, something. It'll make you feel better. Spend some money, buy some stuff. Sorry for spitting on you. There you go. And none of you close enough to get it, so it's okay. Every human on the planet knows there's this emptiness. Maybe one more achievement will fill it. One more goal, one more score on the clock, and one more deal, or we numb the pain. 
We numb the pain with uh, alcohol or drugs or sex, and we know that counselors and therapists and motivational speakers make their living talking about the hole in the human heart. We just got to talk to somebody about it, help me get through it. So that's what our world lives with. It's what we live with. Uh, C.S. Lewis, his most famous book, Mere Christianity, says this, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger, well, there is something such as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, it doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. So we're in the Gospel of John, you know that. And John writes his book, he tells us to convince us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing he's the Son of God that you might have life or in other words, that you'd be satisfied or to grab C.S. Lewis's language that the desire within you would be met through Jesus. Uh, that he is the only one that can fulfill us. And, and John loves metaphors. He loves word pictures. They help us understand it. And he, the, the book is just chock full of them. It, the first one is in chapter one. He is the light of the world, the light that shines into our darkness. We get it. He is the path. He is the door. He is the gate. He is the good shepherd. He is living water. So you're satiated. Uh, your thirst can be satiated. He is living bread. Your spiritual hunger, whatever you're hungering for, will be satisfied. You'll be fed on Jesus. Uh, he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. But of course, not everybody believes this. Not everybody can or will receive it. Uh, so again, in chapter one, he says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And then this phrase, yet the world did not know him. He came, but the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So get to the point, not everyone can or will receive Christ. Not everyone can or will believe in Christ. And so on the streets of every city, on every continent, all around the world, are men and women who have heard the claims of Jesus in one way, shape, or form, and they have concluded that they're ridiculous, that religious faith of yours, yeah, it's just craziness. And so it goes back to lots of different people. 150 years ago, a guy named Karl Marx. Anybody heard of that guy? Uh, he, he claimed that religion is the opium of the masses. It's the drug that we drug ourselves with. He basically said that all religions uh, are simply man-made constructs for us to numb ourselves of the pain. Humanity is weak. We need a crutch to lean on, and so we create man-made religions. He says this, religious suffering is... At one and the same time, the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature. The heart of a heartless world and the soul of soulless conditions, it is the opium of the people. There it is. It's the drug of the people. And then he went on to say this, the abolition of religion, getting rid of religion, wiping it out. As the illusionary happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. In other words, they're not going to really be happy until we can get rid of religion. 
because religion right now is drugging them. It's the opium. It's keeping them happy enough in their delirium. What they really need to know is that there are only two classes of people, oppressed people and oppressors, and they need to rise up against that. And religion is stopping them from the revolution. Uh, Yeah, now I know you didn't come to church for a philosophy lesson, but this is all over our culture today. So, get to the point. Inside the church, we celebrate the life of Christ in every aspect of it. We celebrate his birth intentionally, that God incarnate took on flesh, sinless life, sacrificial substitutionary death, his burial and resurrection in power, his ascension to the Father's right hand. And according to Hebrews 7, that his very present ministry is that literally in this moment, he is interceding for us. He's praying for us, his children, his people. He's at the Father's hand and he's talking about his children on the earth until he returns again. They're in conversation about us. What a beautiful picture. And we celebrate it because we have come to be convinced that it is true. We have lined it up against other philosophies and other religions. We've not just mindlessly gone into this. We've thought it through and we've found in Jesus the truth of who he was, what he is, what he claimed to be, and what he accomplished. But the question remains, why is it that some people will believe it and others don't? The age-old mystery that if the Bible is true and everything it has to say about him, then why is the world simply not beating the door down to get to Jesus? And John 16, our text this weekend, is going to tell us because we need some convincing. The human being needs some convincing. So just set it up, remind you if you've forgotten. We're in the middle of a long conversation. The evening conversation, just 24 hours before Jesus is going to be dead. He's going to be crucified. And he's preparing his disciples for what's yet to come. He's been with them three years, and now he's leaving, and they didn't see it coming. They're unprepared for it. They're troubled. That comes up again and again in the text. You're troubled. You're grieving. They've got questions. I'm leaving you. I'm leaving you here in this world, but not without hope. Love on one another, the promise of my return, the presence of the Holy Spirit. You're going to bear much fruit, the vine and the branches, John 15. Abide in me, the life-giving sap of the Spirit. You've got work to do. And then understand, however, that there are hard days ahead. And then we got to that two weeks ago. Hate, 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 hate. Oh my goodness, Jesus, what are you on about? Love and joy and peace and abiding and abundant fruit. We like that part, but then what's all this hate language? And as the conversation progresses, as you're reading in between the lines, you can almost imagine the tone in the room. The consternation is growing. Uh, It's interesting, if you're paying attention, in the early part of Jesus' conversation, they keep interrupting him. They keep putting in their questions. Hey, but Jesus, where are you going? What do you mean we can't follow you? Uh, Tell us more about this. What do you mean that we're going to see you again and the world can't see you? They just keep interrupting. But the more Jesus talks, it's like the room is getting quieter and quieter. It's beginning to sink in what Jesus is actually saying. And he is repeating himself again and again. I'm telling you these things so that you won't fall away. I'm telling you them in advance so there's no surprises. And then we get to chapter 16 and verse 4, and he circles back around again to a word of comfort that he began back in chapter 14, the promise of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to read there from verse 4 on. I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where you're going, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they don't believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Summary statement is this. The Holy Spirit is going to give you everything you need for what's coming. I didn't tell you this stuff before. You weren't prepared for it. You're still not prepared for it. But the Holy Spirit is going to give you everything you need. Okay, we're going to look at the text from three angles. We're going to look at the promise of the Spirit. We're going to look at the Spirit's confrontation. This is really a confrontational text. It's not an easy text to read. And then we're going to look ultimately at the Spirit's goal. Most of our time in that middle section. So the Spirit's promise. Prophecy is being fulfilled here. Now, it's not explicitly stated in this text. So we just read it, and you're like, where do you see in here the promise of the Spirit? Well, it's not in this text. It's undergirding this text. It's implicit in these texts. The original listeners would have heard and known, and if you've read your Old Testament, you as well know that the promise of the Holy Spirit was an Old Testament promise all the way through. In short, the old covenant of the law had failed because we could not meet the demands of the law. And so all the way through the Old Testament, you're looking forward to this new Redeemer is going to come, this new covenant, if you will. God makes a promise. Give you a couple references. Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant. The old covenant will pass away. The covenant of the law. You've not been able to keep it. I'm going to make a new covenant with you. Now just pause there for a moment and think this through. When Jesus is giving the bread and the wine at the Last Supper, he takes the wine and he says, this is now the new covenant. The new covenant in my blood. It's being inaugurated now. I'll put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. There's another one there in Ezekiel. There's dozens of these, but just one more. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you. Now, we read it, and we're like, yeah, so what? But that would have been a revolutionary thought to an Old Testament audience. Because the Spirit of God did not rest on people, did not reside on people permanently in the Old Testament. The Spirit came and went. The Spirit would be poured out on judges, on kings, on prophets for a moment, for a task, for an assignment, but the Spirit could be lifted. The Spirit came and went. It did not dwell within the people of God. And the Old Testament prophecies are, but there's going to be a day when the Spirit of God is poured out permanently on the people of God. You'll be my people and I will be your God. The Spirit is going to live within you. Okay, that's all the Old Testament. 39 books in summary. Fast forward to the New Testament. The first guy we bump into preaching in the New Testament is John the Baptist, of course. He comes ahead of Jesus to prepare the way for Jesus. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God in the first chapter who takes away the sins of the world. And then he goes on to say this of this Lamb of God. He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist points not just to Jesus as the sacrificial lamb of God, 
fulfilling the Old Testament sacrifice, but he points beyond Jesus to say, and beyond the Lamb of God, he is also going to baptize you with the promised Holy Spirit. This is the one who is going to send the Spirit. And then, of course, you get to Jesus' own words in John 7. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Uh, Spring up a well within my soul. Remember that old chorus? Splish, 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 splash. The spirit of God bubbling up within us. He said this about the spirit on whom those who believed were to receive. So now we get up to John 16. I've got to get out of the way, the promise of the spirit, so he will come. Fulfilling the Old Testament promise. Most of our time, we're going to spend on the Spirit's work. It is a confrontational work. We see it there in verse 8 through 11. It's to your advantage, Jesus said, that I go away. How could it be to our advantage? The disciples had to be thinking. We've been with you for three years. We are expecting you to set up your earthly kingdom. Now you're going to leave us. How is it to our advantage? And Jesus, again, repeating himself. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. The Spirit of God is going to come. He'll be with you. He'll strengthen you and he'll empower you. But most importantly, most critically, the Spirit of God is going to do a work that none of you can do. The Spirit of God is going to blow up and down the streets of Jerusalem. He's going to fill you on the day of Pentecost. Those winds are going to blow across Judea. They're going to blow across Samaria. They're ultimately going to blow around the globe and ultimately through the generations right up to our day to 2023. The winds of the Spirit continue to blow. We have to believe the Spirit of God is at work in the Fraser Valley. Amen? He's still fulfilling the promises of Jesus. The Spirit of God is going to go ahead of you to prepare the soil of people's hearts, to soften them, to open them up, to open their eyes and ears to the seeds of the gospel. The Spirit of God is going to confront the world. That's not comfortable. He's going to confront the world with their great need. He is going to convince the world of their great need. He's going to convince the world of their mess and also their needs. So as I'm preparing this week, I'm thinking of the 12-step programs. And if you're familiar with any of those, uh, they're all based on the same premise for all various types of addictions that's being used around the world these days. The original founder of the 12-steps programs, which was for Alcoholics Anonymous, was a Christian. And the first two steps were this. I have to, number one, recognize that I am powerless I'm powerless in and of myself. I cannot beat this addiction. And number two, I need a source of power outside of myself, which the original founder, Bill Wilson, knew was Jesus Christ. I need a source of power outside of me to help me beat this battle. The Spirit of God is going to convict us of those things, of sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, it is actually a very tender mercy to us, but it can't be softened that it is a confrontational text. You read a text like this, it's not a comfortable text. I'm gonna come and I'm gonna convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment. Boom, wow. Sounds like old school preaching, right? The Spirit of God is gonna put a mirror in the face of every human soul. The Spirit of God is going to point out to us that your primary sin is that you have refused to believe in God. You've turned your back on God. You've shaken your fist. You're saying, basically, we're happy to do life on our own. But through the unrelenting patience of the Spirit of God, He just keeps chasing us down. Chasing us down. So Francis Thompson, a very famous poem, 1800s, The Hound of Heaven, 180 
two some odd stanzas long in old English. It's a kind of challenging read. But basically, if you summarize it down to this, it's like he's the hound and we're the hare. And he just keeps chasing us. Unperturbed pace, just patiently. We're running it's like crazy, like a rabbit being chased by the hound. Running, running, running. And the hound just keeps plodding along just keeps coming after them. The hound of heaven chasing me down life's path. Thank God that he does it, right? As Ecclesiastes 3 tells us, we heard it last weekend from Patrice, God has put eternity in man's heart. There's something within the soul of every human being that knows that there's more to life. There's a hunger, there's a thirst. We're looking for it. And the Holy Spirit in God's mercy will make us aware of how short we fall. And you're like, that doesn't sound very merciful. It doesn't sound very nice. Well, it actually is. Because the Spirit has to awaken to us of how deeply broken we are, of how crushing this weight is. So let me just walk you through a few scriptures. So go to the Old Testament, and you go to Psalm 24, and it asks a very relevant question. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? In other words, who can walk into God's presence? Who can be right with God? Who can you know, be in fellowship with God? And then it gives the answer. Who can stand in the Lord's presence, in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Dang. I guess all of us are disqualified, right? Right? Liars? Come on. Which one of us in this room has clean hands and a pure heart 100% of the time? It goes on to say, you don't lift up your heart to idols. You don't lie. You don't do these things. Who can stand in the presence of God? Only a person who has clean hands and a pure heart. And somebody go, well, I'm glad that we're not Old Testament people anymore. Dang, that sucks. We're New Testament people. Jesus did away with all that stuff, right? Oh, really? Did he? Let's go to Matthew 5. Let's listen to Jesus. When Jesus says, do you not think, do not think rather, that I came to abolish the law and prophets? I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. For I tell you, now here is a slap in the face. Here I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Dang. I guess we're all disqualified, right? So we keep flipping through the New Testament. We're looking for some hope. Somehow I got to find my way in. And we get to Romans 3. It's not a happy text. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues they use to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they've not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And you're like, Paul, stop it. Stop it. Who can stand in the presence of God? I guess all of us are disqualified. Who can come into his presence? Only a holy person. Only a righteous person. But thanks be to God that Paul didn't end there, right? And that the Holy Spirit didn't in there. He goes on then to say, for by the works of the law, signed, sealed, and delivered, no human being will be justified. Believe it. According to the law, no human will ever be justified. But now, that changes everything. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Woohoo! Thank you, Lord. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 
For there's no distinction for all have sinned, signs healed and delivered, fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. In other words, there's only one righteous person, one holy person, one guy with clean hands and a pure heart, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus lays down that sinless life so that his righteousness can be credited to our account. Amen? This is the gospel. That he will convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. Judgment. Now that is not a word that is popular today. And yet, there is embedded deep within every human soul, every human soul, a deep and abiding sense of justice, of justice. And as much as we might say it and we hear people say it all the time, stop judging me. Why are you so judgy? The fact of the matter is we all do it. We are all judges. We all have an innate sense of right and wrong within the human heart. You cannot get away from it and just test it. When you see something wrong happening, the very fact that you said something wrong makes you a judge. You see some abuse. You see somebody cheating, somebody in business. You see some child who's being disenfranchised for whatever reason. You see that culture is not headed the way that it should head. Uh, Someone is scamming the elderly with online schemes. Whatever it might be, you see something that is wrong and there's something within the human heart that rises up and says, this is not right. This should be fixed. Somebody should pay for this. Where is the justice, right? Have you ever felt this? It's on the human heart. And the Holy Spirit in his boldness and in his tenderness says to us, you are exactly right. You're exactly right when you say and when you feel those things. And then he turns the mirror back on us and says, you know what? All those things that you feel about the brokenness of our world are present in our own hearts. And if we were left to ourselves without the Holy Spirit's intervention every single one of us would be capable of the most heinous sins imaginable. We're sinful by nature and sinful by choice. Uh, A little over 100 years ago, uh, G.K. Chesterton is probably a name that many of you have heard. He was an apologist. He was a comic. Uh, He wrote the Father Brown Mystery Series. If you've watched that television show, the London Times put out a request for letters. Uh, Write us a letter Write us an essay, we'll publish it, and the question is, what's wrong with the world? This was G.K. Chesterton's response. Dear sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. The fact of the matter is, every one of us could write that letter, right? What's wrong with the world? I'll tell you, I am. That's because the Holy Spirit has convicted me of sin and righteousness and judgment. I know my standing before him. We're very well aware in our heart that one day, a day of accounting is coming. And so Acts 17, Paul's talking to the Athenians and he says, you know what? The times for the ignorance of God is overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the one who's gonna judge us is the one that he raised from the dead, none other than Jesus Christ. So Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, will also one day be our judge. Now, I know that many, many people in our world today do not believe this to be true or don't want to believe it to be true. Somewhere along the road of their life, they've heard the gospel. They they might have heard it on radio or television. They may even be part of a church, but they don't really believe this, that one day every human being will stand before a just God. 
And yet the scripture says it's impossible for them to believe this. They can't see and hear and understand because the spirit of God has not done a work. There's a veil over their eyes is what we're told. They cannot see the light of Jesus until Jesus lifts that veil. The spirit lifts the veil so that they can see Christ. 2 Corinthians 4. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And this is why we have such urgency in our prayers for the people that we know and love, because the Spirit of God is saying there's a work that only the Spirit can do that you cannot do. So people who are far from God, people for whatever reason, maybe they're trapped in their sin, maybe they're rebellious, they're actually shaking their fist at God, they were, they're, they're hostile toward the things that God want nothing to do with, or maybe they're just indifferent, they're apathetic, they're ignorant of the things of God, they don't care, no wonder, either way, we're like, how can you not see it and hear it and understand it? Why don't you get this? And the scripture says, because it's only in Christ do we get it. Only as the veil is lifted until we see Jesus in all his glory and his majesty, they remain blind and dead. And so we pray like crazy, God, open their eyes. And it takes us to the final thought from this text for the weekend is the goal of the Spirit's ministry. And so Jesus goes on in verse 13 to 15 to tell us in a very succinct format what the Spirit of God is going to do and that he has really just one main goal, and that is to lift up Jesus, to make much of Jesus, that the Spirit is like a floodlight shining the light on Jesus. Now you read through the text and you're like, yeah, he's doing other stuff here. He's guiding us into all truth. Jesus says, there's more things I have to say to you, verse 12, but you can't bear them right now. He's like, you know what? You don't know what you don't know. I would like to try to explain some stuff to you tonight, the night before my crucifixion, but you don't even know the crucifixion is coming. There's just stuff that you're not going to understand. I'm not even going to take the time right now, but when the Spirit gets here, he's going to bring it all to mind. He's going to remind you of, he's going to teach you. You have got to go through some events yet, boys. You've got to get through the crucifixion. You're all going to run away. You're going to deny me. You're going to run. You're going to be in despair. You're going to see me crucified. But a few days from now, just like Jonah in the belly of the whale, I'm going to walk out of the tomb alive. And I wish I could tell you this, but four days from now, on a Sunday afternoon, I'm going to take a walk with a couple of you down the road to Emmaus, and we're going to have the most amazing theological lesson that you've ever had as we're going to flip through the Old Testament and verse by verse by verse, I'm going to tell you how the Old Testament points forward to me and your eyes are going to be open and you're going to get it. But you don't get it right now. There's a lot of stuff I'd like to tell you, but right now you won't understand it. But when the Spirit of God comes, he's going to go, oh, ding, 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 the light goes on. This is what Jesus was talking about. And when he shows up, it is literally going to be like this, like somebody turning on the floodlights. He says, you know what, right now you're overwhelmed, and rightly so. But the Spirit's going to help you and teach you and guide you. And take note of this. You know what? He's actually not going to say anything all that new. He's going to remind you of what I've taught you. He's going to remind you of everything I've said. It's not all about this new revelation. In fact, everything I've said to you is what the Father told me to say to you. And the Spirit's going to tell you what I say to him. The Father, Son, and Spirit, we're all in this thing together. None of one of us is going to contradict the other. The Spirit is going to affirm everything that I have taught you. And he shows up. It's going to be like the floodlight. 
that the Spirit is going to put a display, the majesty and the beauty and the glory of Jesus. He is going to make much of me. Take careful note, friends. We need to note this in the day that we're living in, that the work and the ministry of the Spirit has one purpose, and it is to make much of Jesus. That is why the Holy Spirit comes. As you reach into the further study in the New Testament, not our text, but get to further texts in the New Testament, the ministry of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, all the work that he does, you roll it down to one thought, it is with this purpose in mind. His goal never changes to lift up Jesus, to make much of Jesus, to get our eyes on Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. Someone has called him the shy person of the Trinity, that he always steps into the background. You think about this, a floodlight. What does a floodlight do? Uh, you, you walk across a beautiful building. You come into this building on a, on a night like this. The light's on the building. You don't even think about the lights. You just see the beauty, right? Because the spotlight shines on the object of your sight. The Spirit wants to get your eyes onto Jesus. And so the most Spirit-filled person, the most Spirit-filled church, is the one that is overwhelmed with the presence and the sight of Jesus. You can't stop talking about Jesus, making much of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Faith. Jesus is the righteousness of God freely given for sinful men and women. And so into a world filled with hate and war and sorrow and despair comes a message of love and peace and joy and hope. It really is the gift our world needs. But the only way that message makes sense is when the Spirit of God brings it to life. Now, I don't know what you're bumping into in your day-to-day lives, but I have a sense that the Spirit of God is up to something new. I really do have this sense. I'm not just making this up. It's been a burden growing on my heart, and I I actually think even post-COVID that God is up to something new. There's a stirring I think part of it's because our culture is going crazy all around us and people are starting to wake up and they're going, what's going on with the world that I grew up in? I don't remember this. I don't know this world anymore. I need some stability. I need some anchors, but there is something stirring. Are you with me on this? Are you bumping into people asking this question? Every weekend I'm bumping into people who are, some just literally showing up going, I've got questions. I've never been in a church in my life. I need to know about the things of God. The spirit of God is doing some stirring. And so I've got to ask you a couple questions and then we're done. If you're here and you have never said yes to the offer of life through Christ, either you've never heard it or you've heard it, but it never made sense, or frankly, you've just been too stubborn to say yes, I've got to challenge you. I've got to plead with you. Do not let another day pass without saying yes to the invitation of the Spirit of God, to have your eyes open to turn and to see Jesus. And secondly, which I know is the majority of you, say, you know what, I opened my life to the Spirit of God years ago, but let me ask you this. Are you growing in your hunger and thirst for more? Are you just floating along through the peace and prosperity of North America? We can live our lives without any persecution, without any thought. Do you recognize daily, do you crawl out of bed and your feet hit the floor and you're like, oh, I need more of Jesus today? I need to recognize him. I need to see him. I want to see his fingerprints on my daily life. I'm hungry and I'm thirsty for the fellowship of God's people. I'm hungry and thirsty for the the move of God in my life. And if not, then would you begin to ask the Spirit of God, would you make me hungry again? Would you make me thirsty again? Lord, would you stir up something? If, If I've grown sleepy and complacent, God, kick me in the butt and wake me up, Lord, please. Would you join me in that? And even as we press towards Christmas Day, And as we remind ourselves again of the birth of the king, 
It is so much more than just a warm, sentimental, fuzzy season of the year. As we recognize that this is God who took on human flesh to be the savior that we needed. And the only way we're going to understand that is if the spirit does something in our lives. Amen. So stand with me. I want to pray with you and for you. The team will come. We'll sing. We'll be on our way. Oh, Lord Jesus, how we need the move of your spirit in our lives. Try to think about the disciples when you were telling them that you were leaving them and that it was actually an advantage for you to leave because the spirit would come. They didn't get it in that moment. Later, they would understand it. And Father, how we today need the work of the Spirit among us. And so, Lord, I pray for our nation on the macro level, and I pray for every individual life in this room down at the micro level. We so desperately need the winds of your Spirit to blow in a new and a fresh way. God, where we have grieved you, where we have quenched the Spirit, where we have ignored you, been apathetic, where we've gotten distracted, would you awaken us again? Would you stir up a new and a fresh hunger and a thirst for the bread of life that satisfies, for the water of life that satiates our, our thirst? And God, for people all around us that we know and love, friends and family and neighbors and coworkers, we know that they need to know your message of love, but for whatever reason they can't see it, oh, Holy Spirit, would you be merciful? Would you open their eyes? Would you draw them back? I pray particularly, I know so many in our family have rebellious family members that they're praying for, and oh God, we cannot coerce them back into the kingdom. But Spirit, you can woo them back. Would you do that? Would you do that gracious work? Some are praying for their parents. Some are praying for their kids. Some are praying for brothers and sisters. Oh God, would you do the work that we can't do? And across this city, Lord, be gracious to us in this season. Would you awaken us by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.